Well, John already gave a thought. His leading thought, opening thought was that God gave the ultimate gift of Jesus. And during this Christmas season, um, as you think about it, you know, Jesus gave the gift of salvation. And that's what my message is going to be on this morning, is salvation through Jesus. And if I was to ask for a raise of hands this morning of how many of you have been discouraged or discontented, I think probably all of us would raise our hands in the group here this morning. Or if I was to ask the question, uh, how many of you have complained? And I think, again, probably we would all raise our hands again. But before we look at salvation that comes through Jesus, I'd like for us to consider how in the Old Testament, the Israelites, how they became discouraged. And then when they complained amongst themselves, that led to sin and where they openly rebelled then against God and Moses. So likewise, we also, when we're left to ourselves, we're naturally, we're, we're sinful people. And for some reason, um, manna, which God sent to the Israelites daily when they were in the wilderness, it was a trial for the children of Israel when they, uh, this manna, it was just a problem for them. I think it was likely because their food situation was out of their control. And when things are out of our control, you know, it just doesn't go real good. You know, they, these, these, this group of people, they were totally dependent on God. The, the manna was free. It was a gift from God, just like salvation is free, and it's a gift from God, as Ephesians 2.8 says. And then as sinful people, you know, we want to be in control, and self rules in our, in our bodies. In contrast, when we turn our faith and trust to Jesus, you know, we then submit to him, and we're under his control then. So in Numbers 11, we read how that this mixed multitude that was among the Israelites, they began to desire fish and cucumbers and melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. You know, they, they, they were, their self was getting in control, and they were desiring those things. They, they wanted the things that they had back in Egypt. So they started complaining, and, and they, were, they, they said, all that we have is manna, uh, more manna, more manna. And they complained, and they, they wanted flesh. So to make a long story short, you know, this, this angered God. And he told them on the morrow, on the next day, he would give them flesh. He wasn't going to only send them flesh for one day or three days, five days or ten days. Not even for 20 days, but he was going to send them flesh for one month. They were going to have all the flesh they could eat. And Moses he was beside himself. He asked the Lord, how am I supposed to feed 600,000 footmen flesh for one month? He asked the Lord, he said, are we to slay all the flocks and herds or gather all the fish from the sea? You know, he, he didn't know how, how was he going to feed these people? And the Lord gently reminded Moses to just depend on him. And he said, has my arm lost its power? you'll see that my word will come to pass. Let me repeat that. God said, you'll see that my word will come to pass. And I want to pause here in the story and emphasize that God's word is fact. It's final. 
It's true, and it's life-giving when God says something. So the Bible says the Lord sent a wind that brought quail in from the sea. And these quail, they fell all around the camp. They fell for miles in every direction, it says. And the quail, the Bible says, they were flying at about three, it, it gives a different measurement, but they were flying roughly at, at three foot high, coming in over the ground. So the quail, they were easy to knock down and to catch. And it says that the quail, they came in all that day, all that night, and the next day. Just a continual flood of quail coming in. And it says that everyone caught quail so much that the least that anyone caught was 50 bushels. Now, a bushel is approximately two five-gallon buckets. You figure there's 600,000 footmen. So I took, if you take 600,000 times uh, those two five-gallon buckets, you're going to end up with about 60 million five-gallon bucketfuls of quail, if I figured right, 600,000, um, or did I figure wrong there? But anyhow, it's a lot of quail. Um, we had a lot of quail that, that had come in. So in their obsession for flesh, their desire consumed their thoughts, which now it turned to greed and to lust. You know, they, they wanted quail, they wanted flesh, or they wanted something to eat, but now they became greedy. So God was angry before when they wanted flesh instead of his manna, and he was even more angry now because they had become greedy and, and lustful. So much so that he struck them with a plague and that there was a lot of Israelites killed. So 10 chapters later, we once again find the children of Israel complaining about manna, and that's where I want to pick up the story and how it relates to our salvation. So if you want to turn to Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9, Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9, and I'll begin reading in, in verse 4. And they journeyed, it's talking about the children of Israel, and they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Let me just stop there and explain what was happening. In chapter 20, you'll find that in verses 14 to 21, you can read how Moses sent messengers ahead of the main group to request passage uh, through the Edomite city by way of the King's Highway. Because the King's Highway was a main trade route, it was, easy, it was easier to travel that way. Well, the Edomites were descendants of Esau, so they, they would have been cousins of the Israelites. But the Edomites, they weren't having, they weren't having it, though. They, uh, they, they didn't want the Israelites to be coming anywhere close to them. They were afraid that they would take over their city. So they came out in force to make sure that the Israelites wouldn't enter into their city. <clears throat> so Israel had to go the long way around Edom, and that caused the people to become discouraged, and then they, beca they began to complain. So I'm going to continue reading to uh, pick up in verse 5. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread, this manna. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, 
and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. <clears throat> so notice in verse 5 that the people not only spoke out against Moses, but against God himself. And verse 6 says that the Lord sent fiery serpents. So think back to the story I told just a little bit ago about the quail. If God was able to send quail for two days, you know, and the least amount that anyone picked up was uh, it would be 60 bushel or 120 buckets of quail. Don't you think that God could send serpents as many as he wanted to? He was capable to send snakes to their camp and a lot of snakes. I don't believe there was just a small amount of snakes crawling around. Um, I believe the place was infested with snakes. It was just crawling with snakes. God could have just as well, I think, sent lions. He could have sent poisonous spiders, poisonous scorpions, or some other creature to kill them. But I believe God sent snakes because Satan, who is the father of sin, he is impersonated as a snake in Scripture. And metaphorically, he bit Eve with sin by tempting her. And just as sin is deadly, the bite of a venomous snake is deadly, and many people died, just as many people die from sin. So the people, realizing their sin, they came to Moses, who was their mediator, and they asked him to pray to God and to take away the snakes. And God's remedy was very interesting. No, I didn't find anywhere that God removed the snakes just like God doesn't remove sin from the earth. And we still have sin today. Instead, God told Moses to make a brass snake in the very likeness of the snakes that were killing them. So he was to place this brass snake, he was to place it on a pole so that whenever a person was bitten, he only had to look up at the brass likeness of the snake and he would be healed. That was God's remedy. So what was it that made the brass snake heal? Was there something in the brass snake that came out of it and healed the person? No, it was, it was the word of God that said that the brass snake would heal. That's what made the brass snake heal. God said that, the snake, that, that if you looked on the snake, it would, you would be healed. Each person that was bitten, they had to make a choice to seek out and to look at the brass snake. If the person that was bitten, if they didn't believe that by looking at that snake that he would be healed and that he rejected the idea, it was simple. He died. He didn't live because these were venomous, poisonous snakes. In fact, I, 
I, was, I thought it'd be interesting to see if I could find what snake maybe God sent. There is a copper-colored uh, snake that is real copper-colored. Um, and there's like at least seven or eight different snakes in that region that are very venomous. Uh, some of them are very aggressive, some not so aggressive. But there, was a lot, there, there is a lot of venomous snakes in that area where the Israelites would have been traveling. Uh, and, and like I said, they were very venomous, so you would have died fairly quickly. And remember how I said in, in the last me message that I shared about God's word that we need the Old Testament to help us understand the New Testament? Well, that's the case here because we're going to turn to John chapter 3, verses 12 to 18 and see how God had a plan for our redemption way back in the beginning of time. So the first 21 verses of John chapter 3, it's an exchange between Nicodemus and Jesus, with Nicodemus wondering how he can be born again. And I'm going to pick up the narrative between Nicodemus and Jesus at verse 12. So if you're not there already, turn to John chapter 3, verse 12. So uh, Jesus is, in verse 12, Jesus is asking Nicodemus a question. So we'll pick up there. Jesus says, if I had told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And this is where it ties in. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. <clears throat> so, how is Jesus like the brass serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness, you might ask? I'd like to turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 3. It sheds a little bit of light on to how there's a likeness there, a similarity. Just read that, Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. <clears throat> so just as Moses put a brass snake on the pole, which was in the likeness of a venomous snake, that were on the ground all around. So God sent his son to the earth to take on the likeness of sinful men. And just as the children of Israel looked at the brass serpent and they had life, they lived. So Jesus, the son of God, he took each of our sins and bore the venom, so to speak, and died on the cross for us. So when we as sinners, when we look to Jesus and believe that he's our savior, 
that he's our only Savior, we are then made right with God and we have eternal life. We have life. So turn now to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. And we could turn to 1 Peter 2, verse uh, 24. Uh, but I'm going to, it says pretty much the same thing, but I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I'd like to read it again by replacing the pronouns. God hath made Jesus to be sin for us. Jesus knew no sin that, and you can put your name in there, I'll put my name in there, that Dean might be made the righteousness of God in Jesus. You can put your name in there also. So God is exchanging his righteousness for our sin. And it's, it's not a very fair trade, but as we begin to realize and understand what Jesus did for us, you know, our, heart, our hearts should just be bursting forth with thankfulness and gratefulness for what God did for us, you know, what, what, he, what he really did for us. I'd like to continue reading on in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 in, the, in our Second Corinthians there. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he said, I have heard thee in, a, in time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. It's, it's a day of salvation for everyone. So in these verses, Paul is talking to each one that has not received God's grace. He's saying now is the day to do something about it. So who is Jesus for? Jesus is, he's for everyone. No one's excluded. It's all are invited to come to Jesus, just as, as in our Old Testament story where everyone that was bitten they could be healed. Jesus says in John 3, verse 15 and 16, that whosoever, whosoever believeth. And then in 2 Timothy 2, verse 4, it says that God would have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. Then John 1, 12 says that as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name. So I'd like to now touch on a, a very important aspect of salvation, and that's of believing. Just as the people in the Old Testament story, they, they had to believe by looking at the brass, that they had to believe that by looking at the brass snake that that would save them from death, we're told by Jesus in verses 15 to 18 that if we believe in Jesus, we'll, we also will be saved and have eternal life. So all we need to do is just believe, you could ask. I guess in the simplest of terms, 
the answer would be yes, but I'd hasten to say that intertwined with believing is the concept of repentance, confession, and baptism. There's, there's numerous examples of Paul and Peter preaching repentance in Acts, and I'm, I'm going to look at a few in Acts, we'll go through those. In Acts 26.20, when Paul was preaching to King Agrippa, he testified that he had preached repentance to the Jews as well as to the Gentiles. Paul was preaching repentance. Then in Acts 17, verse 30, when Paul was preaching to the men of Athens on Mars Hill, he told them that God commanded all men everywhere to repent. And then when Peter was preaching in the temple in Acts 3, verses 19 and 20, it tells us that he preached repentance as well in the temple there. And then in the same way, Peter preached repentance to a large crowd in Acts uh, 2, verse 38. It talks about how he preached repentance also, along with baptism. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, we find Peter saying, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men would count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Jesus himself said in Luke 13, uh, verses 3 and 5, that except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So when you think about repentance, repentance is painful because you have to uh, give up. You have to die to self. You have to die to the sins that you've, that you've hung on to. Think about it. In the process of repentance, when you repent, you're acknowledging that what I'm currently doing and living, the, what I'm living currently, it's not right in light of the more righteous way that is presented before me. And you repent of the way that you are living. We, we acknowledge our need of God, and it's through his forgiveness and it's through his mercy and leading in our lives that we admit of our disobedience, which in essence is confessing. So repent, when you think about repentance, you can't help but think about confessing also. They, they kind of go hand in hand. Romans 10, 9, and 10, a really familiar verse, says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead... Thou shalt be saved. Then 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So our confession, it's not only to be made to God, but it's to, to be made with our mouth to other people as well. Because Matthew 10, verse 32, Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men... Him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. So it's, it's, it's important for us also to confess before men also. And you probably know, you, you've confessed before. Um, from time to time you mess up and you have to confess what you've done wrong. Or you feel like you need to. And you know how confession, it's a beautiful thing. It, it's beautiful when your conscience is free your burden is gone, and we're now free to commune 
with our Heavenly Father also, after we've confessed what we've done wrong. So in our confessing, we openly and we publicly, and we're publicly saying that I have repented of my sins, and I have decided, decided to follow the way of righteousness, the way of the Lord. So as a follower of Jesus, you're now agreeing to identify with Christ's kingdom. And Christ's kingdom is uh, it's made up of a body, and that body is a community of local believers that are also following him. That's mostly known as the local church. And the way to identify with Christ's kingdom and his body because of our decision to follow Christ is by baptism. And baptism was commanded by Christ in Matthew 28 and 19 as he left the earth, as he ascended into heaven. And by our being baptized, it lets others as well as the spirit world know that we are now a child of Christ, that we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior. So this process of salvation with believing, repentance, confession, and baptism, it's, but the, it's really but the beginning of our walk with Jesus as we say, as we say yes to Jesus in all aspects of our life. As we go through life and, we, and we're convicted, convicted of something, we say, yes, I, you know, I want to follow you more in this area. We, we then grow in, in our grace and our knowledge through the washing of the word, through, through the scripture, and by the discipleship of the local body of believers. They, they, they help us also. So I'd like to uh, close with Jesus' words from Revelations chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him and I will sup with him and he with me. So the choice is yours. Um, will you open your door to Jesus?